You're listening to Labor Wave Revolution Radio. I think we need to trouble this notion that, that universities are sort of not themselves agents of their own transformation and not playing an active role in the broader kind of social transformations that some of us might refer to as neoliberalism. How did universities in the United States come to be? Often we hear of the corporatization of universities where contingent workers are on the rise along with tuition costs and lowered state funding as something of a recent phenomenon. But how much does this narrative get wrong? And what role have universities played in continued settler colonialism and white supremacy, and more recently in the making of neoliberal capitalism? We discuss these topics and more with Eli Meyerhoff and Zach Schwartz-Weinstein. Eli Meyerhoff is academic staff at Duke University, and he's worked at Social Movements Lab. He was a graduate student for 10 years at the University of Minnesota, where he participated in two separate unionization campaigns to organize graduate student workers. He is the recent author of a new book called Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World, printed by the University of Minnesota Press. Zach Schwartz-Weinstein is an adjunct, most recently for the Bard Prison Initiative. He was a graduate student at NYU for 10 years and involved in the Graduate Student Organizing Committee, or GSOC, where he participated in a seven-month-long strike between the years 2005 to 2006. Schwartz-Weinstein researches food service, maintenance, and clerical workers in United States universities, and he's currently working on a book about a series of strikes done by Yale food service workers in the late 60s and 1970s. We at LaborWave have recently created a website launched this past month. You can go visit it at laborwaveradio.com. And we've also created a new blog to go along with some of our episodes where we get to reflect on what we have talked about and engage with to keep expanding on these conversations. Once our interview begins, the first voice you will hear is Zach Schwartz-Weinstein. What I wanted to do was just kind of take, to begin with, just a really broad overview of academia and the university system as it as we understand it in North America today. My question is, have universities always been a corporation? Like, why, where did this model come from? Is this a recent phenomenon? And like, maybe we can kind of get a little bit of an understanding of why we're in the situation we're in today. You know, I, I think how we define corporation has a lot to do with how we would answer that that question, right? And a, a lot of the kind of popular literature and, and critical university studies as, as a scholarly field talks about, you know, the corporatization of the university as if there was a sort of discrete moment at which one could measure that. And in some ways, right, there there are certain benchmarks, right? There's the Bayh-Dole Act in 1980 when university research becomes patentable and licensable to, to corporations, right? There is the kind of moment in the Cold War when universities begin partnering with defense firms um, and the Department of Defense, and uh, universities become kind of an engine of the Cold War military industrial complex. But even earlier than that, right, we could look at a book like uh, Clyde Barrow's um, Universities in the Capitalist State, and Barrow in that book is tracking the Gilded Age as the moment when a particular kind of corporatization is happening, where university boards of trustees become increasingly peopled with, you know, railroad tycoons and robber barons. 
Um, and this prompts a series of fights over um, academic freedom and indeed the very kind of documents by which we now understand what academic freedom is. And for Barrow, that's really a, a struggle about labor. Um, and it's a struggle that that's resolved in, in a kind of uh, compromise that quashes some of the radical potential that could have um, developed from those fights in favor of this language of professionalization that tries to evacuate um, any kind of class consciousness. Um, and that in some ways, right, lays the groundwork for the predicament that we now find ourselves in. But, right, if we look at the very origins of U.S. universities in, in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, what we see is that, I mean, some, some of those uh, corporations, some of those universities, excuse me, Forgin Slip, we're, we're, we're literally like incorporated as corporations or governed by corporations. So the governing body of, of Harvard University, right, is the Harvard Corporation. The governing body of Yale University is the Yale Corporation. Um, and so in that sense, right, literally some of our oldest universities um, have, you know, if not always been corporations, have, have been literal corporations since very early in their existence. And indeed, one can trace the, the histories um, and the historical um, entanglements of the founders of those institutions or of their, their first funders to um, really the origins of the corporation itself and to the, uh, the British East India Corporation, which is what uh, Eli Yale, Elihu Yale was. He was a, a governor of the British East India Corporation and was basically uh, fired from it for being too brutal towards uh, the people of, of India. And um, scholars like Craig Stephen Wilder and his book, Ebony and Ivy, have recovered the history of universities' entanglements with settler colonialism and with uh, transatlantic slavery that, that really shape um, the emergence and character of universities on the North American continent profoundly. Picking up on what you're saying about the emergence of, of some key institutions uh, like academic freedom and tenure that Clyde Barrow talks about in his book, that's an often unacknowledged part of, of how universities became much like corporations today. I think a lot of people take for granted that tenure and academic freedom are these good progressive kinds of institutions looking at, at the history of how they emerged as a kind of compromise in the face of repression, repression of leftist professors during the first Red Scare around World War One, you can see that uh, there, were, there were other alternative, um, more progressive kinds of institutions that could have taken their place, particularly unions, Association of, American Association of University Professors at that time was... Um, kind of split internally between some people who wanted to make it more like a union and others who wanted to make it more like a professional association. These were two different routes by which professors could have a kind of collective defense uh, against repression. They opted for the professional association route, and then the AUP took that route for many decades, and they didn't get back to supporting labor unions um, until... I don't know, 50, 60 years later. Can you speak a little bit more about that history of what, what precisely was the compromise between unions and academic freedom? Like what was on the table and what 
accepted the more kind of sounds like conservative or neutral side of the faculty parties opt for by opting for academic freedom. There's another book that talks about this, this history by Christopher Newfield called Ivy and Industry. He talks about this compromise as creating divided governance where administrators would govern the economic functions and political functions of the university, while academics would govern the knowledge production functions of the university. So this kind of academic freedom is really a limited kind of academic freedom, where professors are given freedom to do the knowledge production things, teaching, research, um, and public speech to a limited extent. Uh, but they don't have protection for um, engaging in political economic kinds of activities in the university. This kind of civil freedom, not a um, political economic freedom. I'm wondering then, maybe going back to Zach here, if you were to say that there are any distinct features of contemporary universities, you know, understanding that the lineage of universities has maybe been a little bit more consistent than maybe the imagination allows us to believe, what would you say is more of a particular characteristic of universities that we're dealing with today, as opposed to what we've experienced in the past? Let me go back to that question of corporatization, right? Because obviously something has happened over the last half century, right? Universities today are different from what they were 100 years ago. And you know how, how we talk and think about that transformation, I think, is important. One of the ways that it gets framed, right, is, is as a... Uh, sort of one-way kind of encroachment of corporate capital onto the university as a pristine and untouched space. Um, and, and when we look at the longer history of the university, we know that that's not true. So scholars like Andrew Ross, who was my dissertation advisor, uh, ha- have argued instead that what we should see is a kind of convergence right, of the university and the knowledge corporation. That on the one hand, universities are becoming more like corporations, but on the other hand, some corporations are also becoming more like universities. And so we have this sort of like two, you know, they have corporate campuses and they have, they're hiring scholars, they're hiring researchers, they're hiring people trained in, in the university to perform um, a particularly specialized set of of tasks that we would, and, and even in ways that we would associate with the university as a space. In one sense, right, I think we need to trouble this notion that that universities are sort of not themselves agents of their own transformation, right, and not playing an active role in the broader kind of social transformations that some of us might refer to as neoliberalism. In some ways, I think universities have been engines of those transformations as much as they have been victims of them. So I, I would frame that kind of period in part that way. But I think what we would also have to talk about is first, right, what happens to universities in the wake of the Second World War, which is that a massive influx of state funding because of World War II and because of the uh, Cold War, um, which soon follows it, there's just a massive influx of, of state funding in the universities. And because of the GI Bill, there's a massive influx of students into the universities. Um, and so we have the creation of, of what some scholars call the mass university. And budgets keep going up. Um, state spending keeps going up. And that's the case from you know the 1940s all the way to the late 1960s. And in the late 1960s, as the, the post-war economic boom starts to slow, 
in, uh, as the early 1970s set in and the country enters a recession and the state spending finally starts to decline, university budgets finally start to decline. What happens is universities have to find other sources of money. Often that comes from block grants uh, from the states, which um, force universities to kind of rearrange their spending priorities and prioritize some things over others, and also tend to cover a lot less than the prior uh, methods of funding did. So there's, in the aggregate, um, a steep decline over the last few decades in the amount of money that um, universities are spending per capita on, or the states are spending per capita on universities. You know, students are left to pick up the burden that the state leaves behind. So tuition skyrockets, the student debt industry becomes the massive behemoth that it now is. Uh, but also what we see is a casualization of labor, not only in the university, right? But, but the university winds up being one of the major engines of it. And so there's a casualization of academic labor, of graduate teachers and researchers, of adjuncts, and also a casualization of non-academic labor, of food service workers, of custodial, of custodial workers, of clerical workers, who are increasingly themselves outsourced or you know moved into the kind of shared services model, which is sort of the next frontier of outsourcing in a lot of ways. I want to talk more about the experience and conditions of work and labor within a university. But before doing so, I'm wondering if Eli, maybe you can provide some insights into what happens to the quality of education and the forms and types of education that are offered in academies when these kinds of budgetary priorities are having to be made. When we talk about universities, we need to have a nuanced view of the, the many, many different types of higher education institutions. So with increasing neoliberal tendencies, I, I think we see we also see an in, increase of inequality between the conditions of studying that students have at different types of institutions. So elite, rich universities, I think, still have pretty good teaching and learning conditions for most of their students, the students are paying a lot of money or their parents are paying a lot of money to attend those places. But at state universities and community colleges, uh, we see increasingly worse conditions for, for teaching and learning, uh, much bigger class sizes, classes being taught by an increasing number of precariously white adjuncts. So in the, in the early 1970s, think about 25, 30% of of positions were adjunct positions, and now and the rest seventy percent were tenure tenure track positions. And now now that those numbers have flipped, where twenty five percent positions are tenure tenure track, and some seventy five percent are are contingent. So the conditions for contingent faculty to teach are much rougher than for more secure faculty. They're usually juggling more obligations outside of. The classroom. They usually have much less support for developing their classes. Often tenure track professors will get grants or time off to work on developing a syllabus for a class. Adjuncts never get that. Also, conditions for grad students have become rougher with recent neoliberal trends. Grad students are often having to be teaching assistants for more than one class or teach their own classes in order to make enough to get by, especially at public universities. Yeah, also, I guess, with the 
increasing reliance of, of university budgets on tuition and a, a trend to have university departments depend on on the number of students that they can attract into their classes um, in order to get money for their budgets. So you have a kind of competitive situation where departments will try to get bigger and bigger classes while stretching thin the number of uh, faculty they have teaching across those classes and, and often admitting more grad students while, while knowing that with the, the job market for new grad students being really, really rough, it's highly likely that those grad students won't find academic employment. So they're, they're treating grad students as workers to be exploited for their, their teaching labor during the time of grad school. I've been on the job market for six years now, and the kinds of jobs I'm applying for usually have about 200, 300 people applying for one job, and there's maybe 15 of those positions open each year. Do you happen to know what the maybe numbers or statistics are of how many people in higher education that are trying to pursue a future in academia actually land tenure jobs in academia? I, I've seen numbers. I don't have, I can't pull them out of my head, but but they're low. And um, a disproportionate number of jobs tend to go to applicants from a very small number of grad programs. So if, you're, if your program is not highly ranked within your field, Often that means if you're not in the Ivy Leagues, but not always, uh, then it, it's uh, increasingly difficult. It's less that there aren't enough jobs. It's that the jobs have all been downgraded. There, there are plenty of jobs. There's plenty of need for people to teach classes, but it's a lot easier for universities to structure those jobs as contingent jobs as jobs that don't have any benefits that pay, you know, a couple thousand bucks a class, jobs where you have no kind of real control over your working conditions uh, and no security unless you organize and take it. So this brings me to the question about the working and labor conditions within higher education. One particular narrative that I encounter often is about graduate student workers and the presumption is that there are a bunch of privileged people in the first place that they're just here and they're kind of like, grad school is supposed to be a grind. They're pretty much getting an easy ride. They should be grateful for whatever small stipends they get. How much of this is just kind of a, you know, an anti-intellectual narrative, but how much of it also even like accurately depicts what graduate student work life is really like? Uh, well, I think it's certainly an anti-intellectual narrative. I also think, think that it it's factually doesn't hold up. You know, graduate students at NYU were paying, uh, you know, out the nose in rent, um, right? Just just by virtue of, of living anywhere within an hour of campus, right? You're, you're paying an absurd amount of money in rent. And prior to uh, the first union contract, uh, which was secured in 2002, before the the Bush administration allowed the university to kind of weasel out of its bargaining relationship with the union for eight years. Graduate students at NYU were making like $11,000 a year, which is not even close to a, a living wage in New York City. Certainly wasn't in 1998 or in 2002 and, and is, isn't now. And you know, people have families, right? And and even the people who who were not in you know normative family units, right? And and who were living with two or three roommates, that you can't can't survive on that uh, without going into debt or without 
um, you know, taking on multiple other jobs that, uh, according to the graduate school, we weren't supposed to have, or, you know, finding some kind of um, summer employment that would then slow down your ability to finish your degree in the amount of time that you had funding for until the union existed. And, and the union secured basically an average of 40% raises um, across the board within the, the life of the first contract. Graduate school was really only survivable for people who had sort of outside sources of wealth or income or were willing to take on a significant amount of debt, at least at NYU. Other stories where there have been prolonged union struggles um, there's been, you know, even in places where they haven't won recognition yet, it, it's kind of a similar story, right? That even just organizing winds up improving conditions and, and wages as the university tries to um, kind of hold off unionization by, in, in some cases, unilaterally increasing pay. But no, I mean, I would say that that's a, it's a really distorted picture of the amount of, of labor and, and the degree of compensation that, that most graduate employees in this country are, are working under, particularly at, at public universities, where in addition to probably making less than colleagues at, at some of the unionized private universities, people are also often having to pay tuition in the years when they're not teaching or having to collectively bargain for tuition waivers. What about the work conditions for those that are in adjunct positions or classified workers within academia? Eli, if you wanted to talk a little bit about the experience of work and what life is like as an adjunct or a classified worker in the average university experience today. And speaking about my, my own experiences as an adjunct, I, I, I should preface that by saying that I think contingent faculty proportionally have more people of color and, and women compared to the, the ranks of tenure, tenure track faculty of white cisgender dude. So my, my experience, I think, should definitely not be seen as generalizable across all contingent faculty. I think, I think the conditions are, are worse for uh, women and people of color who have to grapple with systemic institutional racism and sexism in the academy. Even with my white privilege and male privilege, found working conditions as, as an adjunct to be pretty rough. And uh, I also should say that my, my experiences have been at an elite institution, Duke University, which is relatively well compared to a lot of other places, made about $7,500 per class, probably twice as much as adjuncts get paid at, at many state schools. And I also live in a relatively affordable area. Even so, it's... Uh, got a difficulty of having job insecurity and not making much money and not getting health care. I think psychologically, emotionally, it's difficult having to feel like a kind of second class faculty member or well, say maybe like third or fourth class. One of the things that university administrations have become good at is is segmenting our, our labor class as much as they can. Like at, at Duke, there are different types of contingent workers with different pay scales and different lengths of contracts. And part, part of they do that is, is so they can just feel like we're in competition with each other to get better positions um, also so that it makes it harder for us to organize with for example with our adjunct union here we, we organized an adjunct union with SEIU just a couple years ago they weakened the administration weakened our power or I guess they forced us to weaken our own power by making our union split up our, our bargaining unit unit so that some of the more powerful 
or the, the more secure contingent positions, ones with longer contracts, were excluded from a bargaining unit. And the bargaining unit ended up being composed of people with shorter one to three year contracts. So those are the people who are more disposable, the people who have longer contracts who could actually put more pressure on the administration were excluded from the bargaining unit. What have been the working conditions and the experiences of labor for administrators within higher education? You know, administrators are not just one monolithic thing either. There's tiers. But within the decision-making tier of administration, what does that look like? Thank, thank you for pointing out that, that administration is really differentiated category. And in, in some ways, right, at the, at the bottom of that category, there are people who look a lot like clerical workers. Uh, and sometimes are designated as administrators so that they won't be able to unionize. I know of like hallways in particular universities where there are like three people designated as administrators to every two clerical and technical workers uh, as a way of hedging against future strikes and also as a way of basically containing its bargaining power. And, and so there are ways in which at the bottom of the administrative category, there are people who look a lot like classified service workers and, and in some cases would organize uh, if they had the ability to do so. At the top of that category, um, there are people who are really kind of looting a structure that is increasingly built on student debt. Uh, so you have people like the former president of NYU, John Sexton, who during his uh, kind of decade and change as the president of the university, I think it wound up being like 12 or 13 years by the end of it, was making upwards of a million dollars a year in salary and also had the university purchasing vacation homes for him. Uh, vacation homes that were being uh, purchased for him out of the university's endowment at the same time as the university was generating more student debt than any other private or public university in the country. There are other instances that are just as kind of outrageous, but but that's a particularly striking one, at least for me, because I walked a picket line outside of his office for seven months and yelled at him every time I saw him for the next 10 years. I don't know if you heard this story. Uh, I might fudge the details a little, but in Portland State University, the president recently was called out because they discovered that he was billing the university for like private hot air balloon rides. <laughs> nice, yeah. Which seemed like nice touch. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are all kinds of stories. There's the story of, of um, Linda Katehi, the former chancellor of UC Davis, who was raking in huge amounts of money by, by getting named to corporate boards um, and taking all these very expensive trips on the university's dime in some cases. Uh, and this is the, the same chancellor, right, who was ultimately responsible for the, um, the pepper spraying of students during the, the Occupy movement on campus, the whole uh, John Pike incident that became a meme. There are any number of other incidents. Um, there, there are university presidents right now who are being paid millions of dollars a year, like multiple millions of dollars a year. Part of the seductiveness right, of, of the corporatization language is that there are ways in which the governing structure of universities looks like uh, a corporation. There are golden parachutes. There are boards of trustees who come from the worlds of corporate capital. Uh, NYU, for the most part, didn't have any, you know, had a huge board of trustees and almost all of them when I was there, possibly all of them, really came from Wall Street or were the heads of major corporations. 
unlike at, at a place like Harvard or Yale, where um, you know some of the trustees were politicians, some of them were coming from the clergy, uh, some of them were artists, which doesn't you know exculpate that institution, but but sort of gestures towards the ways that it was trying to embody a particular model of social responsibility. Right at, at NYU, it was almost all Wall Street people, and and then we would also you know, want to talk about the ways that universities' money is being governed, the way that universities are themselves um, increasingly looking like hedge funds, ways for particular segments of the bourgeoisie to invest its capital and then are investing that capital in and as hedge funds invest capital. And I think Yale is probably, uh, Yale and Harvard really are the, the best examples of that. They've had the highest return on the investments, but other universities, public and private, have really behaved very similarly over the course of the last several decades. the segue a bit now in that we've kind of given a diagnosis of what the university is today and the work conditions and the inequality that people experience. But there's also the histories of university struggle. Now, you both have talked a little bit about labor organizing experience within higher ed. And in my impression, that's not often the kind of social movement history that comes to mind in the popular imagination when they think about student protests and higher education protests. But what do you think most people conjure up in their mind when they think about student activism? Are, are you talking about the caricature or are you talking about you know people seriously thinking about it? I'm talking about the caricature. I, mean, I, I think there's a way in which labor organizing can also fall into the caricature. But but obviously, we have these sort of very reductive images of student protest. Films like PCU, basically a bunch of hippies upset about what are cast as trivial concerns, regardless of, of um, how trivial they actually wind up being, and, and seeing universities as sort of spaces detached from the real world, uh, where people don't have time to care. There's a kind of double movement happening where, where on the one hand, universities are being branded as spaces of sort of left-wing indoctrination that are dangerous to society and that are distorting, you know, real good normal values. And on the other hand, they're seen as sort of laughably disjunct from the way that the rest of society thinks and sort of off in their bubble and completely ineffective in their way uh, in any attempt to speak to um, larger social concerns. I also get the impression, so for folks that take the question seriously, there does seem to be a common assumption that academia launches kind of social movements from within, or the relationship between, say, the free speech movement and black power movement was really like entwined and that there was so much of the student movement at the forefront of these things. How much is that actually an accurate description of social movement history from within and beyond the academy? I think it's probably 
much more of a reciprocal uh, relationship. And, uh, you know, the free speech movement was in part triggered by the experience of people who had been active in the civil rights movement, who joined the Freedom Summers, and then were coming back to campuses, right? And, and you know, our, our colleague, uh, Nick Mitchell, I think, uh, writes really thoughtfully about the kinds of ways that campus politics and, and intellectual production that takes place on campuses exists in a really uneasy relationship with social movements and a really complicated relationship with social movements. But to kind of oversimplify and, and to boil that problem down to bare bones language, I would say that on the one hand, what's happening in, in social movements outside of campuses is, is it in fact having a profound effect on the movements that, that are happening on campuses. And, I, you know, by the way, right, the free speech movement creates one of the first attempts to organize graduate students in, in the U.S. Um, that there's an attempt to create a free speech union on the UC Berkeley campus um, the following summer, I think, that winds up not being successful, but leads to the successful unionization of graduate employees at the University of Wisconsin in 1969, uh, at the University of Michigan a couple years later, and attempts all over the country in the wake of those two to unionize the rest of public universities and several private universities. And on the other hand, a lot of the transformations that are occurring because of student protests, right, are occurring because student protests and student movements are trying to go out into the communities that they have been inspired by, in many cases that students are starting to come from, as universities admit increasing numbers of, of working class people and students of color and are trying to create knowledge, create disciplines, create ways of studying that speak to the kinds of social and political ferment that's occurring in the rest of society outside the university, which is a kind of vexed phrase for me. So we got a bit of a snapshot of some of the kind of histories of social movements and college uh, activism. What are some noteworthy examples throughout history that you think could be inspiring to today's kind of material conditions that people should be focusing on within higher ed. One that comes to mind first is the movements in San Francisco State College in the uh, mid-1960s, mid-late 1960s, where uh, you had a kind of convergence of civil rights movement, black power movement, countercultural movement, and anti-war movement. And you know, students were organizing to uh, take control of their university. At San Francisco State, there was a student-run university that started, started by some students involved in the hippie counterculture movement called the Experimental College. They ran it as a, a student group that took money from the student government. They used, used that money to put on free student-organized classes. They collaborated with the Black student movement on campus to help the Black student movement run their own classes, organize their own classes. And those, those classes um, became some of the first Black studies classes. Through experiencing those, those classes, the um, organization on campus decided they wanted to organize for a officially recognized Black studies department, ethnic studies college on campus. 
that that was one of their main demands um, that, that motivated a major uprising on campus that was called the Third World uh, Student Strike. They shut down the campus for five months, and uh, that resulted in the administration eventually giving in, giving them Black Studies Department, Black Studies College. Yeah, I think that that's a pretty inspiring history, but but also it's important to learn from that history. This is something our our colleague Nick Mitchell has written about that um, in response to that, that organizing the administration recognized that that students have short lifespans on on campus. Um, Students can only stick around for a few years. So they gave in to the students' demands initially by by giving them this Black Studies department, but they they staffed the department with contingent faculty. And so when the the students' students' movement died out, students moved on, they were able to then fire those contingent faculty or not renew their contracts. So so you can see the the beginnings of the the trend towards the contingentization of faculty as a kind of administrative backlash against the gains of that Black campus movement. Well, and that gets me to the question of today and the prospects for launching successful campaigns against the corporatization of higher ed, the adjunctification within universities. Because what I've encountered and experienced is a similar kind of sly strategy from a lot of top-level decision makers in universities that simply understand when it comes to like undergraduate students, graduate student workers, that by design, that's a temporary population. They're going to continually rotate out. And a lot of times, particularly when it comes to undergrads, it seems like they just kind of put on some nice rhetoric, maybe concede to some small demands and, and just wait them out. So with that being the circumstance of today, what are some tangible strategies and ways that people can and have been kind of claiming university spaces as their own and even taking over some of the decision-making power? First, I would point to a couple movements that are, are kind of ongoing that I think have been engaging in these questions in interesting ways, one of which is sort of the sanctuary campus movement that's really picked up steam after the 2016 um, election and, and the kind of intensification of attacks on, on immigrants documented and undocumented um, in the wake of, of Trump's victory. And the other uh, that I would point to is, is, you know, a more recent movement, which is the occupation at Johns Hopkins University to oppose the creation of a campus police force in solidarity with um, residents of the neighborhoods surrounding Johns Hopkins who would feel the brunt of um, the policing that such a force would do, as histories of other campus police forces would indicate. I think that uh, occupation, it has been and remains a very powerful tactic for campus movements, right? The kind of um, seizure of space as a kind of expression of almost communization theory, right, is a way of of removing spaces that the university relies upon from circulation, um, of denying those areas to its sort of accumulation machine. You know, it's also a, a very costly tactic for us, both in the ways that universities tend to respond to such gestures, i.e. with police repression and with uh, sort of disciplinary consequences. 
So there, there are all kinds of other tactics, right, that, that we can engage in that don't necessarily result in uh, those particular drawbacks, right, such as researching vulnerabilities, researching where the money is, and figuring out ways to um, target particularly sensitive spots, particularly sensitive institutions, particularly sensitive relationships. I think that can be done really powerfully. Uh, and I think there are some really um, incredible examples of that in, in recent uh, recent organizing. And um, one example of that that I would point to is right over the course of the 32-year-long history of the Union Drives among graduate teachers at Yale, one of the most effective organizing victories that they had was in the early 2000s, about half of Yale's endowment at the time was invested in a hedge fund called Farallon Capital Management. Um, which was the hedge fund owned and operated by Tom Steyer, the billionaire who is now running for president. And this hedge fund was, um, you know, Steyer now sort of brands himself as like green capital. But at the time, he was invested in like coal power plants in Indonesia and the privatization of the Argentinian telecommunications industry. There was a scheme to siphon water from underneath um, a national park in Colorado. They were building an airport in Southern California to move the products from Maquiladoras over the border more efficiently. But the, one of the most sort of galling things that Farallon was invested in was um, CCA, the corporations, uh, the Corrections Corporation of America, which is now called Corp Civic. And graduate employees at Yale led a campaign to first they, they researched um, this connection and, and uh, Sarah Haley, who's now a, a professor at UCLA, wrote a report, kind of laid it out. And then uh, she led the kind of movement to get Yale to divest from CCA. And Yale, you know, to the last refused to divest from CCA, but the pressure was was so great on the hedge fund that the hedge fund wound up divesting from the private prison corporation because the university wouldn't, right? The university would not pull its money out of the hedge fund, but the hedge fund wound up pulling its money out of the private prison. Well, you know, are there other particular strategies or things that you would want to highlight um, on the question of what do we do today? One really um, promising strategy, I think, is to force universities to reckon with their histories and to make them do that in a way that is on our terms or on students and workers' terms and not, not on the terms that the, the administration would prefer. Universities have been examining their own, their own violent histories of entanglement with, with slavery and colonialism. Um, but sometimes well, the administrations usually want to turn, turn these efforts into public relations campaigns for the university public performance of dealing with their historical shame, but that in a way that gives a kind of progress narrative where they make it seem like they've reconciled with this dirty past and they've learned their, their ways and now we're living in it, a new, clean and bright future. But the antidote to that PR kind of history is for students workers to d dig up the university's dirty past and show how that those violences continue today in universities um, in the afterlives of slavery and well, the 
the continuations of slavery by other means and then continuations of settler colonial capitalism today. This was in police on campus and uh, ties between universities and prisons. And um, one really good example of that is the Silent Sam, uh, the organizing against this Confederate statue, neo-Confederate statue called Silent Sam at UNC, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So again, to your, your question about how, how students can overcome the problem of kind of short time span, it's like quick four-year cycles of students coming in and out. So this, this um, campaign to take down Silent Sam has been going for at least 50 years, well, 60 years since, since the civil rights movement, the 60s. Of students at UNC have been struggling to take down this campus and struggling to take take the statue of a Confederate soldier off of the campus. Every decade since then, new crops of student activists have, have organized to try to take down that statue. And fi- finally, just last year, students pulled it down by direct action. But rather than just stop with that that single representation. Of, of white supremacy, uh, students have been organizing to re- reveal uh, ways that 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 history continues in the present. One way they're doing this is with the project called Silent Sam's Reckoning, where they're doing research on former UNC students who own slaves and their family members who own slaves, uh, and making a very detailed database of, of this information, and they're trying to to then trace how how that how those concentrations of wealth gained through slavery have continued to today. And they're also in their their organizing on campus, they've highlighted the uh, continuation of racist policing on campus, both in how the police have responded to their protests and in how the police have protected neo-confederates who've come on campus to try to defend the statue and they've also highlighted ways that the police have um, engaged in racist kind of policing in the neighborhoods in the city around the campus so yeah i think that's that's one promising route really forcing universities to reckon with how those histories those violent histories continue today In the preparation of talking, we had mentioned this concept called abolitionist university studies. Maybe you can give us some details about what is abolitionist university studies? What are the actual um, strategies for making it more of a predominant disciplinary project within higher ed? And you know, where do you hope the future of it goes? 
So abolitionist university studies is sort of this this terminology that uh, we're borrowing this language around abolition from uh, the kind of prison abolition movement. Organizations like Critical Resistance, which have been engaged in uh, working towards and thinking about what abolition means in the context of this sort of moment in which um, record numbers of people are imprisoned. Um, right, carrying forward this language that, that's probably most familiar to people around the abolition of chattel slavery in the United States and, and across the globe towards a critique of, uh, of the prison um, and, and refusing or problematizing the language of reform as, as insufficient and instead insisting that what we have to work towards is the destruction of the institution itself as we know it. And so an abolitionist university studies is in part um, an insistence that the kind of governing paradigm of critique of the university, um, which at the moment is, is this relatively new field called critical university studies, which um, some of the scholars that we've cited, not all, certainly imagine themselves as part of, that, that we want to sort of think about what it means to go beyond that um, and what a kind of approach to thinking about the university that doesn't harken back to this kind of Edenic golden age, that doesn't envision the task as a return to a better past, but then instead wants to fundamentally abolish a structure as it currently exists that is deeply exploitative of any number of different groups of people along any number of axes, most troublingly and most problematically around race, gender, sexuality, immigration status, class. This institution, which in the U.S. is a product of settler colonialism, is a product of the transatlantic slave trade, product of white supremacy, is one which the point needs to be to end and to make something else. Part of what we're trying to do with that particular term is both to trace the links right between the university and prison, the way in which in some ways they're co-constitutive, constitutive, co-constitutive, sorry, and also to kind of take that particular uh, approach that is modeled in prison abolitionism and apply it to the university as a subject. When people think about abolishing the university, if you look that up on Google, you'll get right-wing takes on the university. People say abolish the university, they usually mean that the university is a a den of of leftists and that it's an embarrassment to America. All these leftists who want to destroy our country should abolish the university. So when, when we're saying abolitionist, abolitionist university studies, it's kind of a shocking, provocative thing to say in a way, because we do not mean that right-wing approach. Abolitionism itself is a field of conflict, different perspectives on what it should mean. Going back to the slavery abolitionist movement, a lot of slavery abolitionists were anti-Black racists, and he wanted to deport formerly enslaved African people to Africa. Other leftist abolitionists wanted to um, create conditions for true freedom and equality for all people in America. We're aligning this this abolitionist university studies with that leftist kind of abolitionism. And I see the 
continuation of that leftist abolitionism today and in the prison abolition movement and police abolition movement. You can see the continuation of a right-wing abolitionism in the pro-life movement. One of their biggest groups calls themselves the Abolish Human Abortion Movement. They explicitly tie their lineage to slavery abolitionism. Yeah, so we're taking this kind of leftist abolitionist approach to the university. So Zach was saying that, that we're, we're distinguishing this approach from the approach that's dominant in critical university studies. And a big way we're doing that is through through giving a different kind of periodization of the university. Most critical university studies approaches tend to start with the university after World War II, this kind of golden age of lots of federal and state funding for universities. We think that kind of nostalgia for golden age misses the violent elements of the university the higher education system more broadly that have been foundational and that emerged in a much earlier history of the university. So we think that abolitionist university studies needs to take the periodization back a lot further in history. We're building on a lot of these recent histories of the university that have shown the entanglement of the early universities with slavery and similar colonialism. Craig Stephen Wilder's book, Ebony and Ivy, is a really good one. One way we're focusing this kind of periodization is just by, by looking at what happened to universities after the Civil War, what we're calling the a post-slavery university. So, so after the Civil War, the abolitionist movement uh, died out in a way, or, or it transformed into the movement for reconstruction in the South for what W.B. Du Bois called uh, the creation of abolition democracy were abolishing white supremacist democracy that had been dominant in the South and placing it with an abolition democracy where formerly enslaved people would have real democratic power. Of course, capital property forces reacted to that movement of reconstruction with what Du Bois called the, the counter-revolution capital and property. We think that abolition, abolitionist university studies needs to look at what happened to the university universities during that time of reconstruction and the counter-reconstruction period and to, to look at how, how this counter-revolution of capital and property shaped universities during that time. With the end of slavery, capital couldn't extract cheap labor from enslaved people. Instead, it needed to accumulate surplus value in a new way. One of those ways was through using universities as a, a new means of accumulation. For example, universities were used to accumulate land. The, the Moral Land Grant Act, this gave Western states and East, some Eastern states um, the right to dispossess Native American peoples of their land for the purpose of building universities. That's one kind of accumulation that universities were involved in. Another was to use universities as, as a means of training experts in techniques of scientific labor management and racial science that was used to justify racial segregation, racial discrimination in the Jim Crow South and across the U.S. In this kind of abolitionist university studies, we're, we're, we're interested in tracing the continuation of these kinds of new forms of accumulation through universities from the post-slavery, immediate post-slavery period after the Civil War up to the present. And at the same time, we're, we're rather than just giving kind of negative critical view of universities, we, we also want to ask about how abolitionism universities could and is continuing today in a, a generative, constructive way to ask questions about how 
how the abolition movement can uh, take space, use resources at universities for, for studying and organizing that that's useful for radical movement, movements, both on campuses and beyond campuses. So thinking about possible relationships of collaboration between student movements and labor movements and prison abolition movements, sanctuary movements, migrant justice movements, and so on. I think Eli laid that out really wonderfully. I would just say that we're thinking about that in a a piece that we're currently co-writing with Nick Mitchell at UCSC and Abby Boggs at Wesleyan, and are also going to be kind of developing that at a, a conference that's uh, being kind of co-sponsored by the, I think, the Franklin Humanities um, Initiative at, at Duke in October. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I wish I had brought up the conversation about abolitionist university studies sooner. But it sounds like we'll have to have you back on Labor Wave in the future so we can keep having this conversation, learn more about how this idea is getting developed and where it's going. And I just want to say thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you.